1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, now at the New York Public Library. I'm Robert Boynton. For the 1982 Gallatin Lecture, Sir Edmund Leach discussed the work of Roman Jakobson, whom he met in 1960 at Stanford Center for the Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. Jakobson was one of the pioneers of structural linguistics, and a major influence on Claude Levi Strauss and Roland Barth. He taught at Harvard from 1940 until his retirement in 1967. Leach was a British social anthropologist and the provost of King's College, Cambridge, from
2: 1966 to 1979. My name is Frank Kermode, and I've very great pleasure introducing Sir Edmund Leach this evening. He's a man of remarkable distinction. In more than one field, he has been, as an anthropologist, active for many years. His fieldwork took place in Burma and in Borneo and in Ceylon, and what he still, I notice, calls Formosa. He is the author of many books on such subjects as kinship, on myth. He wrote a book on Levi-Strauss, a writer with whom he has certain limited resemblances, and... I've known him best during the years when he was Provost at King's College, Cambridge, a period which many of us remember with great pleasure and gratitude. I know that Roman Jakobson was a figure of special importance to Edmund Leach, and it is a great pleasure that I ask him now to give us his talk on the work of Roman (laughs) Jakobson.
1: What I'm going to be talking about is Roman Jakobson's influence on social anthropology, which means British social anthropology in practice, and not competent really to talk about anything else. As you are certainly all well aware, Roman Jakobson died in July of last year in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He was an intellectual titan of world stature who stands on a par with the very greatest of any age in any, any part of the world. Since my main purpose this evening is to talk about the relationship between Jacobson's work and my own kind of academic activity, I shall offer you only a brief sketch of a biography. In this regard, most of my facts derive from a biographical article by Maurice Haller, who was his pupil and colleague at MIT." But first I must emphasize also that I know very little about professional academic linguistics. I shall certainly not be attempting to explain what is special about Jacobson's linguistics as contrasted, say, with Chomsky's linguistics, nor am I concerned with whether Jacobson's linguistic theories were true and false, considered as hard science. What I want to talk about are certain very basic underlying ideas which are common to both Jakobson's linguistics and to the kind of social anthropology which I myself have engaged in for many years. There are many other kinds of social and cultural anthropology, just as there are many other kinds of linguistics. Jakobson was born in October 1896 and enrolled in the philological faculty of Moscow University. In 1914, he was immediately instrumental in founding the Moscow Linguistic Circle, of which he was president from 1915 to 1920 as a young man. This was an association which included linguists, philosophers, students of literature, and several poets. Its purpose was the elucidation of linguistic problems of both practical and poetic language as well as questions of folklore and ethnology. Jakobson's concern with poetic language and particularly with the way that poets are able to use textured patterns of contrasted sound to convey meanings which are at least partially independent of the grammar and syntax of ordinary sentences was to endure throughout his career. This, incidentally, was one of the reasons why Jakobsen was not caught up in the excitement that was provoked from 1957 onwards by the transformational generative grammars of Noam Chomsky and his followers. Chomsky's celebrated use of the expression, colourless green ideas sleep furiously, to illustrate his point that Sentences may be nonsensical, even if they are well-formed according to normal rules of syntax, seems to assume that speakers of natural languages are all the time trying to make statements of the sort that are appropriate to linguistic philosophy, and that they are trying to do so by means of language and language alone. Jakobson, on the other hand, knew that poets do not use words in this way and that it is only in the artificial circumstances produced by written texts or telephone conversation that language becomes a fully rational, self-contained system of communication isolated from all other systems. He pointed out with regard to Chomsky's enterprise that Chomsky's prototype of a piece of well-formed semantic nonsense is not necessarily any less meaningful than Andrew Marvel's reference in his celebrated poem to the mind annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade. The sense or nonsense depends on the context in which the sentence occurs. The point I'm making here seems to be partly confirmed by the fact that the linguistic philosophers have been greatly impressed by Chomsky, but have paid relatively little attention to the work of Jakobson. Philosophers, it seems to me, are allergic to the inserts of poetry. This, of course, we realize when we read Plato. In his youth in Russia, Jakobson was himself a practicing poet, and was particularly influenced by two Russian poets whose radical experiments with language have been compared to the contemporaneous experiments in the reduction of form that were being made in Paris by the Cubists, Picasso and and Braque. In 1920, Jakobson emigrated to Kisabakia, where he remained until 1939. Together with another Russian emigre linguist, Nikolai Trubetskoy. He was there instrumental in founding the Prague Linguistic Circle, which from 1926 onwards became the primary inspiration for the whole of European linguistics. By this time, the original Moscow Circle had been denounced in Soviet Russia as, quote, a fortress of formalism, that most reactionary bourgeois movement which was attempting to poison the consciousness of the Soviet intelligentsia. It is thus ironic, as my chairman would know very well, that in my own country at the present time, structuralist and post-structuralist forms of literary criticism, all of which in fact owe a great deal to Jacobsen, are frequently denounced by literary conservatives as, in effect, a Marxist-inspired movement which is attempting to poison the consciousness of Western intelligentsia. The Prague Circle was broken up when Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia in 1939. Jakobsen moved first to Denmark, then to Norway, and then by walking over the frontier after the German occupation into Sweden. He seems altogether remarkable that at this period of extreme personal stress, Jakobsen was able to complete the original version of a work which some specialists consider to be his most important and original single monograph. The title of the English translation is Child Language Aphasia, and Phonological Universals. It showed for the first time how the study of speech disabilities in young children could help to bring together two enduring but quite fundamental problems of linguistics. First, what if any are the universals of natural human languages? And second, how does it come about that we as individuals are able to acquire language at all? Jakobsen reached the United States in June 1941. But despite his renown, his arrival was not, it seems, greeted with any great enthusiasm by his immediate professional colleagues, who seemed to have found his exuberance and his refusal to see linguistics as a narrowly narrowly bounded and arcane specialism something of an embarrassment. Jakobsen survived the war years by working with other European emigre academicians here in New York in École des Études and it was in this context that he came to exercise such a profound influence over the thinking of Claude Lévi-Strauss, who was his junior by 12 years. The latter had reached New York from Vichy, France, by a devious route in 1942. The expansion of Slavic studies after the end of World War II gave Jakobsen the foothold he needed. He was appointed to a regular professorship at Columbia in 1946. He moved to Harvard along with most of his graduate students in 1949, from 1957 onwards, he held a concurrent appointment at MIT. In a formal sense, he retired in 1967. In practice, he was extremely active until the very day of his death. It is comforting to know that the Soviet anathema was subsequently withdrawn. Since his death, memorial symposia in honor of Jakobson have been held not only at Cambridge, in Cambridge Mass, but also in Moscow. In biographical dictionaries, Jacobson is always described as a linguist, and linguistics was certainly at the core of all his thinking. But to infer from that that his work must necessarily lie outside the province of a social anthropologist such as myself would be the equivalent of saying that no one who is not a professional artist or an art critic should ever say anything about the work achievements of Leonardo da Vinci. Perhaps I could, as it were, start there in terms of what I'm going to say. The index entry for Leonardo in the 1969 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica has 35 subheads, the first 10 of which read aerodynamics, aesthetics, anatomical studies, architectural engineering, camera obscura, capillary action, chain drives, costumes, crayon drawings, dendrochronology. We've only got as far as the letter D, as you see. Leonardo was, in his day, the uomo Universale, the universal man. And though Roman Jakobson's interests were not quite so diverse, they are in some ways comparable. Jakobson made major contributions to the theory of linguistics, especially phonology, and to linguistic geography, the distribution of languages. He contributed to the investigation of medieval Slavic cultures and literature, to studies in folklore and poetics. His writings include important critical essays relating to the arts of literature, cinema, painting, and the theatre, He also made contributions to the general theory of communication, as well as informed speculations about the possible relationship between the phonemic coding of language and the genetic coding of DNA. Jakobsen, like many other thinkers, believed that, to a unique degree, our possession of language distinguishes mankind in a quite crucial way from all other species. Linguistics should therefore be thought of as ramifying outwards into all the activities of man that are properly considered to be human rather than narrowly biological. Though even so, we should never forget that at its roots, even language is biological as well as a cultural endowment. Although the vast scope of Jacobsen's reading included much that falls within the scope of academic anthropology, his influence on my own immediate bit of the words has been mainly indirect. My own academic subject is the English version of social anthropology. It is rooted in the work of Bronislaw Malinowski, A.R. Radcliffe-Brown, and Raymond Firth, all of whom I have had the good fortune to be closely associated. Although Malinowski had indeed an exceptional flair for learning languages, and indeed, although he made a number of unorthodox but nevertheless penetrating contributions to the general theory of linguistics, and the general theory of semantics, his followers displayed relatively little interest in linguistics as such. Even today, the number of individuals who are professionally competent, both in modern linguistics and in social anthropology of the British sort, can be counted on the fingers of one hand. But that is beside the point. The influence of Jacobson's work on British social anthropology has not been directly through linguistics, it has been by a devious route. British social anthropology, which is markedly different from most of the cultural anthropology was taught in the universities in this country, would not exist in its present form if it had not in recent years developed a kind of dialectical relationship with the work of Claude Lévi-Strauss. Now, I know of no British social anthropology who has ever declared an unqualified enthusiasm for structuralist anthropology of the Lévi-Straussian sort. But likewise, there is today no British social anthropology who has not been deeply influenced by Levi-Strauss's work, either because he admires it or because he hates it. Levi-Strauss's immediate immense intellectual debt to Roman Jakobson has been freely admitted on many occasions and is indeed very apparent. It is mainly because of this latter association that themes from Jakobson's phonology seem to appear in a transformed shape in much recent work by British social anthropologists. But there is more to it than that. It would appear that I am myself partly responsible for the fact that structuralist themes can be seen to run through much contemporary British social anthropology. And certainly, many of the scholars concerned were at one time my pupils, so perhaps I am in some way responsible. Academic influences are never clear-cut, but the fact that the insofar as it is a leech-derived structuralism of British social anthropology, is often markedly deviant from what would be regarded as structuralist orthodoxy by a fully committed follower of Levi-Strauss, is certainly related to the historical fact that my direct personal contacts with Roman Jakobson were closer than those which I've ever had with Levi-Strauss himself. I myself first met Roman Jakobson at the end of 1960 when we were both fellows at the Center of Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences, which is in the Stanford Environment at Palo Alto. Linguistics was very strongly represented at the center that year, but the magnetic focus of a galaxy of talent was certainly Roman Jakobson, And indeed, the almost hypnotic strength of his personality drew into orbit many of the non-linguistic fellows, including most of the anthropologists, who were also quite well represented. Their were many angles to this fascination. Firstly, the extraordinary range of Jakobsen's interest and the fact that he's borne out by his writings, he appeared to have a professional grasp of the literature over the whole range of this enormous range of interest. But equally striking is the fact that Jakobsen himself showed no interest in the distinction between professional and amateur. He would discuss the most complex issues of linguistics with complete tarot like myself, without for one moment suggesting that there was any difference of intellectual status that might hamper our discourse. And I would emphasize this enormously, his wonderful outgoing ability to draw you into his discussions and to treat you as an equal, even if you were quite a junior member of the profession or not even his profession. The next point that impressed me was one that I have emphasized already. Although linguistics was certainly at the core of Jakobson's interests, and although he held a some of the most crucial characteristics of spoken language are absent in other frames of communication, nevertheless, he never tried to establish a rigid frontier between linguistics proper and softer forms of semiotics. This, of course, is precisely why his work has provided such a powerful stimulus in fields such as my own. There were three particular facets of Jakobson's protean concept of linguistics which were dominant at this period. The first was phonological distinctive feature theory, which had been undergoing a steady development ever since his early association with Trubesco in Prague. The second was the polarity between metaphoric and metonymic relationships, that is to say the contrast between association through similarity and association through contiguity in, in, in semantics. Under various labels, such as Saussure's paradigmatic and syn- versus syntagmatic, the metaphor metonymy opposition has indeed played a part in linguistic theory for many years, but Jakobsen had given it a special emphasis in a paper published in 1956 entitled Two Aspects of Language and Two Types of Aphasic Disturbances, which went back to some extent to that paper composed in Sweden. The Third facet of Jacobson's work, which was apparent at Palo Alto in 1961, was his renewed interest in poetics. He had just completed, during a visit to Paris, the analysis of Baudelaire's Les Chats, which was published in the following year, with Jakobson and Levi Strauss named as joint authors. Now, each of these three themes had an immediate innovating influence on the social anthropology of my sort at this period. Jacobson himself had a paper in the press entitled Why Mama and Papa? Which brought out the relevance of child language and of the developmental sequence of sound control postulated in distinctive feature phonology for any discussion of the details of kinship terminology. Now, kinship terminology is a very obscure kind of subject which anthropologists have always thought of, for a hundred years, they thought of, well, the one thing we do different from anybody else, we study kinship terminology. Here was Jakobson suddenly bringing in a brand new kind of insight from phonology, which annoyed some of the anthropologists. Several anthropologists, including myself, have subsequently used Jakobson's linguistic insights on this point, I think, to quite good effect. The Metaphor autonomy opposition plays a central role in Levi Strauss's La Pensee Sauvage, the, the Savage Mind, as it is mistranslated, which first appeared in French in 1962. Uh, so you can see the date at which I contacted Jakobson was, as it were, rather a critical one. A lot of things were happening in anthropology at that time. At a level that is only slightly below the surface, Jakobson's approach to poetics as manifested in the essay on Les Chars, can be seen to have influenced the whole of Lévi-Strauss's monumental work on the analysis of myth, which, most of which was published between 1964 and 1971 and runs to four very fat volumes. On an occasion such as this, I can give you only the barest outline of what is involved, and I'll concentrate on those parts of Jacobsen's arguments which can most easily be applied to non-linguistic materials. In doing this, I shall be ignoring other major aspects of Jakobson's linguistics, such as his work on the concept of markedness, which no one has so far used in this way, though I think they might. I shall also be ignoring the American facets of this story, about which I know relatively little. For example, the anthropological fashion known as Componential Analysis, which was much in vogue about 20 years ago, would seem, on the face of it, owed quite a lot to Jakobson, but I'm not to talk about that. Distinctive feature theory in its pure form is concerned with phonology and nothing but phonology. But Jakobson repeatedly encouraged non linguists to devise analogous theories in other fields of inquiry. Indeed, he himself seems to be a good deal happier with the reductionism by which Levi Strauss conceived of systems of social relationship as structures of binary coded messages than are many of my anthropological colleagues. Now, I'm afraid this is, for those of you who are not anthropologists who will hardly pick up the clues here, but Liebestrow saw the whole culture as consisting of messages, and it's a very curious frame of reference, but it comes from Jakobsen, and Jakobsen approved of this way of thinking. Even so, exchange theory in anthropology, which is a more easily understood part of anthropology, it links up with economics, has certainly benefited enormously from this rather unexpected cross-fertilization from linguistics. To give you the kernel of what distinctive feature theory is all about is just a few minutes, is very difficult, and if any of you know what it's all about, before I start, you will laugh at me at what I'm saying, but those of you who don't may gain something. Speech is a continuous sound pattern imposed on the breath. At any rate, the breath is continuous, and when you utter a word, there seems to be no obvious break between one part of it and another even if there are breaks between the words sometimes. Nearly all modern phonological theories assume that at this level, or manifest level, the coding is digital. Obviously, there is some kind of coding involved. Crudely stated, it is supposed that the listener interprets the sound pattern by recognizing the occurrence or non-occurrence of minimal sound elements, which are referred to as phonemes. Distinctive feature theory elaborates this idea into a system which is both consistently binary and consistently combinational and transformational. It claims that what the listener recognizes are not, in fact, the sound elements as such, but patterned combinations of opposition between paired constituents of the sound pattern element. There is disagreement among the specialists as to precisely how these constituents should be specified, and the version of the theory published by Jakobsen and Haller in 1956, which listed just 12 possible pairs and no more, no less, has now been qualified in various ways. The details need not concern us here, but just to give you an indication of the kind of matrix of binary oppositions which is produced by this kind of analysis, we might note that the theory proposes that an English listener is able to distinguish the phoneme B, but, from the phoneme P, but, because the B is constituted as, and with the following distinctive features, non-vocalic rather than vocalic, consonantal rather than non-consonantal, diffuse rather than compact, grave rather than acute, oral rather than nasal, lax rather than tense, interrupted rather than continuant. Whereas the P phoneme has all the same constituents, except that it is tense and not lax. The key point that needs to be understood is that each manifest element in the sound pattern, elements corresponding very roughly to the units which we distinguish by the letters of the alphabet, is assumed to be generated by a whole set of relationships. The triggers which carry the message to the brain of the listener, and which are generated by the Speech of the speaker are not the relationships as such in a manifest sense, but relations between relations. Now, this sounds terribly complicated, but in fact, it is standard usage for modern eight year old children who write computer programs in the language known as BASIC. This language, like other higher computer languages for that matter, uses an alphabetical code which in its manifest form, simulates ordinary written English. But it is transformed electronically into a much more fundamental machine language, which is coded in binary digits. At this deeper level, the message that you put into the program is entirely embedded in relations between relations. Combinations of 16 possible pairs of these relations will, in fact, allow you to say almost anything. So this is the extraordinary thing that with a rather limited number of paired binary oppositions put in combination, they very soon reach an almost unlimited capacity of talk. Now it is here that Jakobson's distinctive feature, phonology, served as the foundation which underpins structuralist anthropology of the Levi-Straussian sort. When Levi-Strauss mysteriously refers to the human mind, les as a universal which generates all human culture. I'm not quite sure what he means, but what he seems to be saying is that human brains everywhere operate with the same machine code in a binary language, the elements of which are, as in a computer, relations between relations. The analogy should clearly not be pressed too far. But if it is valid at all, and I think to some extent it is valid, then it must follow that If we are looking for universals in human culture as distinct from human language, we must make our cross-cultural comparisons at a highly reductionist level and not at the level of manifest human behavior, which is what anthropologists have traditionally done. The records of ethnography must be interpreted as surface evidence and no more than surface evidence for the operations of a deeper level code which is inaccessible to direct investigation. Now, I'm myself not at all happy with levi talk about a universal human mind, since it seems to imply the existence of either a metaphysical group consciousness of the sort postulated by Durkheim, or of a universal subliminal Freudian unconscious or sort of Jungian archetype, none of which are called for by the underlying theory so far as I can see but it was certainly Lévi-Strauss who first brought distinctive feature theory to the attention of the anthropologists. He did so originally in an article published in 1945 when he was still working directly with Jakobsen. But his massive volume on the elementary structures of kinship, which is his first major work which became internationally known among scholars, which was first published in French in 1949, was an attempt to apply fairly directly these same ideas about distinctive features on a much grander scale to an empirical mass of data from ethnography. Now, there's great disagreement as to just how far this enterprise was really successful, but it certainly altered the way anthropologists now think about their data. A recognition that the reciprocities of, and here are of exchange, I come back to that, express relationships, is an insight which goes back at least to the beginning of the end of the last century, indeed to Durkheim. So also does the recognition that reciprocities of different kinds may express different kinds of relationship. There was nothing new about that. I'll give you an example of what I mean. If I exchange a glass of beer for a glass of beer with a friend while I'm standing at a bar, this is a relationship of equality. And the fact that the exchange is reciprocal, even if delayed, I pay for the first glass of beer, he pays for the second glass of beer. But the fact that it is beer for beer expresses the fact we see each other as equals. On the other hand, when I exchange the glass of beer in interaction with the barman and pay him money for it, and I pay him money and he gives me the beer, we are expressing the fact that we see our relationships as unequal and some kind of hierarchical relationship. So that the relations between the relations then, between symmetry and asymmetry, is what is the message here, and it is giving the message equality inequality of hierarchy. But Levi-Strauss, following Jacobsen's model, carried such reductionist analysis to a much deeper and much more generalized level. In the elementary structures of kinship, the opposition symmetrical exchange versus asymmetrical exchange comes to be treated as a distinctive feature comparable to the opposition tense lax, which distinguishes English P from English B. And then in turn, this is associated with a whole set of other distinctive features to form a system. Now, this is far from being just an exercise of academic pedantry, just to make things impossible to understand, as some perhaps tired undergraduates may think. In the appropriate context, it can, in fact, yield genuine and quite novel insights into the causal mechanisms that lie behind Human behavior on a grand scale. Incidentally, Jacobsen himself perceived very clearly that there is indeed an analogy between what he was doing in phonology and the contemporary developments in multi-level computer languages. His phonological writings in the 1950s are full of references to Norbert Wiener's book on cybernetics, which was published in 1948, which provided the basis from modern electronic automation and also to Shannon and Weaver's long essay, small monograph entitled The Mathematical Theory of Communication, which came out in 1949, which first formalized the concept of information in its mathematical sense. Later on, Jakobson made the important suggestion that distinctive feature theory will eventually throw light on how the genetic code embedded in DNA, which is in essence a kind of flip-flop binary code, not at all unlike the machine code of a computer, is capable of generating behavior in an organism at the manifest level. Now, if we use this model of how genetics work, which assumes that the geneticist concept of gene is, as it were, an analogue of Jacobson's concept of phoneme, then we might end up with a cybernetic system, which was very far from being deterministic. There would be strong elements of arbitrariness slipped into the thing, just as there are in linguistics. Now, the details of such argument is far beyond my competence, but... It has a very direct bearing on the furor that is currently puts the sociobiologists and most cultural anthropologists at loggerheads. In brief, the sociobiologists are inclined to assume that the connection between genes and behavior must be of a direct, mechanical, and deterministic kind at a sort of manifest level, while the anthropologists following cues provided by Jakobson, assume that it is language-like and thus, in significant respects... Arbitrary. Naturally, I myself believe that the latter are right. But let's get back to phonology. The flow of sound, which is decoded by the listener as consisting of successive phonemes generated by combinations of distinctive features, is continuous. When we impose a digital discontinuity on the continuity for purposes of either encoding or decoding a message, we necessarily leave a boundary layer which is ambiguous. Now, the coded sequence of oppositions which computer programmers write either as a series of ones and zeros or as a series of pluses and minuses is seen to be as interrupted by intervals which have the status of being neither one nor the other. Jacobson saw this as a perfectly empirical phenomenon which could be demonstrated as actually occurring in the way young children learn speech and how they actually learn the order in which they learn to control the different vowels and consonants. And he wasn't at that stage doing more than describing facts. They were his so-called primary triangles. But for the structuralist anthropologists who are trying to use these sort of ideas analogically, these diagrams are simply convenient models. The best known and one of the most artificially contrived is Levi-Strauss's famous culinary triangle of raw, cooked, and rotten, the point being that raw is the natural state, the transformed state is either transformed by nature when it becomes rotten or transformed by culture when it becomes cooked. You can see, anyway, that there is an analogy here. Some people find these diagrams helpful. For others, they are a distraction For others, again, they provide matters for ridicule. But those who take them seriously, the key point is that the analysis in terms of binary oppositions, which is so prominent in the apparent description, is never intended to be exhaustive. The initial polar types, uh, which are represented as plus and minus in my lower diagram, are always mediated by a third intermediate category, which holds the data which belong to neither extreme. Hence, the structures in question always end up by being triadic rather than binary. And for those who are theorizing about this stuff, this is a key point. What is at issue here is really the relationship between continuity and discontinuity. Human experience in space and time is continuous. There are no natural breaks in the flow of messages which we receive in our brains through the continuous workings of our senses, of hearing, seeing, tasting, smelling, touching, and so on. But if these continuous flows of information are to be perceived as meaningful, we have to break them down into discontinuous units corresponding analogically to the phonemes of meaningful speech, and then interpret the resulting phonemes by recognizing the component relationships between the distinctive features from which these discontinuous units have been constructed. Now, this kind of abstract formulation must, to those of you who are unfamiliar with it, sound very contrived. But one example, which will at least be familiar to the anthropologists who are in this audience, and I know there are a few, is provided by van Genep's three-phase model of de Passage. According to van Genep, all social transitions, for example, transition from being an unmarried woman to being a married woman, say, or an adolescent to being an adult, or being alive to being dead—all such transitions—the ritual associated, the, the the social marking of, of such transitions—are marked by a three-phase ritual. First, there is a rite of separation in which the individual, the initiate, is separated from his/her original role. Second, there is an intermediate phase corresponding to the Nord, where the initiate is not in society at all, is outside the system, the right of marginality. And thirdly, there is a right of aggregation which brings the initiate back into society but in the new role and is symbolically the reverse of the first, the separation role. Now, the pattern arises, the fact that the pattern is so similar in so many different contexts is that although biological time is continuous, we grow older and older all the time, the social time in which changes of social status take place, is viewed by the participant actors as discontinuous. You are either a child or an adolescent. You are either an adolescent or an adult. You can't be both at once. The binary opposition between a right of separation and a right of aggregation has to be mediated by a marginal phase, for example, in a marriage between the time which they get married, and the time they come back, is that I'll take it off on a honeymoon to get get them out of the way. Although Van Genip's book, which seemed to indicate that there are universal patterns in the way that this paradox of biological continuity versus social discontinuity is resolved and was published as long ago as 1909, it is only since a version of Jacobson's phonological model was brought into anthropological analysis by Levi-Strauss that we have been able to understand the psychosocial structure that underlies the ethnographic similarities. You will find this very, very clearly. Between 1909 and something like 1950, there is hardly any reference to Van Gennep's de Passage, except in a sort of very token way. And then quite suddenly, everybody is using this material. I want now to say something about Jacobson's stress on the universal importance of what he called the metaphoric and metonymic poles of language. Jacobson's style in these matters is quite inimitable. The paper on the subject, to which I've already referred, first takes Saussure to task for failing to recognize that Saussure's own insight into the fact that the phoneme is a product of a whole set of concurrent distinctive features contradicts Saussure's complementary assertion that language is strictly linear and that in speech we can only say one thing at a time. Jakobsen who is attacking this position that we only say one thing at a time from a poetic point of view, illustrates his point with a characteristically entertaining but erudite comment on Alice in Wonderland's argument with the Cheshire Cat. The argument you'll remember was whether Alice had said pig or fig. And he points out that in order to separate the P from the F, the two phonemes, Alice needed to be able to recognize three different distinctive features, not just one. And the recognition of these three Distinctions depends, in turn, upon the phonological context in which they occur. If that wasn't enough, a few pages later, along we find with cross-references to Tolstoy's War and Peace and the filmmaking techniques of D.W. Griffiths and Charlie Chaplin, Jakobsen is making the absolutely crucial point that although semiotic systems in general are bipolar, in that similarity and contiguity relations are always opposed... Nevertheless, in all practical cases, in the empirical situation, both dimensions, both the dimension of similarity and the dimension of contiguity are present, and it is this combination which allows us, in effect, to say several things at once, even if we are constrained by the apparent linearity of speech utterance. Indeed, it is precisely in this combination of the metonymic with the metaphoric that the essential and peculiar characteristic of poetic communication is to be found. And please remember that Jacobson knew what he was talking about from the inside as well as from the outside. He was himself, in his early years, a practicing poet of some repute. Now this, it seems to me, is where Jacobson is original. As he himself emphasized, mere recognition of the polarity, metaphor, metonymy, is to be found all over the place, in Saussure, in Pierce, in Freud, in Fraser, and all sorts of other places. But what was missing in the earlier accounts was recognition of the importance of combination and transformation. In other words, the importance of the third side of my triangle. In the field of anthropology, that can be seen very clearly if we compare Fraser with Levi-Strauss. One of the central themes of Fraser's The Golden Bar was the analysis of magic. He distinguished two major types homeopathic magic, based on the law of similarity, that is Jakobson's metaphoric pole, from contagious magic, based on the law of contact, that is Jakobson's metonymic pole. For Fraser, both these, and I quote from Fraser, two great principles turn out to be merely two different misapplications of the associations of ideas. There is no feeling in Fraser, no attempt to see how these two principles are in practice combined to form a representation of a magical other world. They are just mistakes and separate mistakes. And now here is a quotation from Levi Strauss, The Savage Mind, which shows the entirely different point of view, which derives more or less directly from Jacobson, where the combination of metaphor and metonymy does precisely this. It creates the image of a magical other world. And I'm quoting now from Levi Strauss, Birds are given human Christian names in accordance with the species to which they belong more easily than are other zoological classes because they can be permitted to resemble men for the very reason that they are so different. They are feathered, winged, oviparous, and they are also physically separated from human society by the element in which it is their privilege to move, to the air. As a result of this fact, they form a community which is independent of our own, but precisely because of this independence, appears to us like another society, homologous to that in which we live. Birds love freedom. Birds build themselves homes in which they live a family life and nurture their young. They often engage in social relations with other members of their species, and they communicate with them by acoustic means, recalling articulated language, end of quote. Now, once the procedures are understood, a great deal of ethnographic material of very diverse sorts, art forms and ritual sequences, as well as mythology, seems to invite analysis of this kind, and indeed what might be called combinational semiotics which has been very prominent in the writing of social anthropologists over the last fifteen years or so, if the authors concerned were to be challenged as just where their ideas had come from, they would be much more likely to say pay deference to Levi Strauss or to Victor Turner or perhaps even to myself than to Roman Jakobson. But it is certainly from Roman Jakobson that the whole ideology springs. Jakobson is only mentioned once or twice in the pages of, and just in passing at that, in the pages of. Lévi-Strauss' book on totemism and in the savage mind, both of which, like the analysis of Les Chars, first appeared in French in 1962, it does not seem to me at all plausible that either of those difficult but immensely influential and stimulating books could ever have been written had not their author, as Lévi-Strauss, like so many others, been caught up in the whirlwind of Jacobson's ideas, and I'm sure Lévi-Strauss himself would agree with that. The full significance of Jakobson's contribution in this area has not yet been fully appreciated. Even in the early days of the Prague circle, he was questioning the assumption that was frequently made by Saussure's disciples that the distinctions continuity versus discontinuity and the related distinction diachrony-synchrony were not any quite simple distinctions, but in fact somehow analogous distinctions. And the result of this was that Historical linguistics was thought to be quite easily hived off from semiology. But the detail of what Jakobsen had to say in these matters has been largely neglected by commentators. It is still widely believed, indeed among anthropologists and some others, that structuralism, both in linguistics and in anthropology, is somehow anti historical. For anthropologists, this is a crucial issue. What is the relationship between history, considered as a continuous sequence of happenings from time past to time present to time future, and the structuralist geometrical notion of transformation, which seems to require that events be perceived as discrete entities in time and space? There are linguists and anthropologists who deceive themselves into thinking that they can actually describe continuous change. And there are many others who imagine that an interest in transformations must exclude altogether the study of history. Even those who recognize the fictional nature of such discriminations don't know what to do about it. I don't think Roman Jakobson would have claimed that he knew quite what to do about it either. But from the very beginning, he displayed a dual interest, both in history as a combination of persistence and development, and in history as transformation. My anthropological colleagues would certainly benefit very greatly if they paid close attention to some of Jakobson's more way-out writings which are concerned with such issues. I'd like to try to explain, just as the end now, of what I'm trying to get at here. As I've already emphasized, one way of describing what is special about Jakobson's distinctive feature theory is to say that it lays stress on the fact that the message-bearing elements of a code represent patterns of relations between relations, rather than just patterns of relationship as such. On the face of it, this is an argument about synchronic phenomena. It may help to link up linguistics with the interests of computer engineers and geneticists, but for anthropologists, the crucial question is, where does history fit in? The opposition between past and present is contrived and artificial. We experience time as a continuity. We describe it as if it were a sequence of discrete intervals, of discrete events. This simple fact has been the bane of my own profession. Ethnographers visiting remote and exotic societies for the first time have almost invariably described their experience as if it were all recorded on a single photographic plate. The culture of the people concerned is viewed as if it were a fossil picked up from the seashore. Every detail is assumed to have been like that since time immemorial. The device of writing about ethnography in what is laughed at as the ethnographic present of a typical anthropological monograph is synchronic and timeless. It has no place in history. It is only very recently, indeed, that anthropologists by cooperating with archaeologists, have begun to examine their materials in the light of assumptions such as are normally used by professional historians. The results of such a reassessment are sometimes quite dramatic. No one, of course, is surprised to find that the arrival of colonialist Europeans had shattering consequences for the societies which were in existence at the time of their arrival. But the realization that in many cases the pre-colonial social systems were already undergoing rapid historical development even before the Europeans arrived at all makes nonsense of much textbook ethnography. In the absence of hard documentary evidence, to the contrary, it would seem that men regularly construct the past as a kind of reflected shadow of the present. The past explains the present. Anything that does not serve this strictly functional purpose, is somehow dropped from the remembered record. If this is a valid statement, as to a very large extent I believe it is, two consequences follow. Firstly, the past as viewed from the present always appears to be changeless and conservative. The ethnographers who described the societies which they observed as changeless were doing no more than simply reporting what they had been told by the local informants. Secondly, unexpected events which occur in the present are interpreted as if they were recapitulations of events which had already occurred in the mythical, supposedly unchanging past. It is a corollary of this new anthropological concern with what really happened in history that anthropologists should now, almost for the first time, be taking a serious interest in how the local inhabitants regarded the earliest European visitors rather than how these same Europeans regarded the local inhabitants. Recent work by the anthropologist Marshall Sahlins concerning the historical events surrounding the death of Captain Cook in Hawaii in 1779 seems to support the generalization I've just made. The Hawaiians, being faced with the unprecedented appearance of a European ship, immediately mythologized the whole sequence of associated occurrences. Cook was identified as the deity whose annual visitation was just about to be celebrated. His movements were interpreted as conforming to the traditional mythological sequence. He died a sacrificial death only because inadvertently he had broken out of the pattern into which he had been so adroitly fitted. To repeat my generalization, we are only able to recognize a contemporary sequence of actions as an event, and an event with historical implications, if we can interpret it in our own language as a transformation of another such sequence, which, from our point of view, has already occurred in our mythological past and which is already recognized as an historical event with a named identity. It used to be supposed that myth is badly remembered history. Salins is saying that it comes closer to the mark to say that history is an enactment or reenactment of myth. Now, this is a fascinating idea, and Salin's treatment is, I think, a good deal too simple. But it leads us back to Jakobsen in his role as an historian, both of Slavic origins and of Russian poetry. A number of Jakobsen's writings, some of them quite recent, are concerned with the history of the 9th century Byzantine mission to the Moravians, which seems a bit way out for an anthropologist we're talking about. This missionary enterprise had political objectives since the Slavic population of Moravia was already nominally under the allegiance of the Archbishop of Salzburg, who owed fealty to the Pope. The language of the papal church was, of course, Latin. The Moravian rulers, in fact, wanted to be in the Byzantine camp because they spoke a form of Slavic language. And in the Byzantine camp, of course, liturgical language would ordinarily have been Greek. However, by a special dispensation, the Byzantine missionaries, Constantine, Cyril, and Methodius, who were themselves Slavic speakers, they came from somewhere in the Crimea, were allowed by the uh, authorities in Byzantium to use a special liturgy written in their own Slavic language, now known as Old Church Slavonic, instead of in a traditional liturgy written in any of the traditional sacred languages of Latin, Greek, or Hebrew. Now, this Purely political maneuver had the effect that the Moravians became, at least for a while, adherents of the Eastern and not of the Western church, but it had other subsidiary effects. In Moravia, in fact, the Byzantine political success was short-lived. The Pope got his own back by military means. But the old church Slavonic liturgy of Cyril and Methodius and the specially designed Cyrillic alphabet, which went with it, provided the basis from which all the literary languages of modern, originally Orthodox Slavs are derived, and, of course, the Russians still use the Cyrillic script. Because the religious texts of Christianity were here quite exceptionally, written in a language which was everywhere understood, and this is in the 9th century, not the 16th century, remember, the Bible came to be treated as the foundation myth of local Slavic nationalism, The achievement of Cyril and Methodius in gaining permission to use Slavonic texts was celebrated as an expression of the Christian Pentecost at which the faithful were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Slavs thus came to regard themselves as a specially favoured chosen people for whom the punishment meted out to the Old Testament builders of the Tower of Babel had been dramatically reversed. Jacobsen's discussion of these complicated historical matters are concerned, as might be expected, to emphasize the crucial role of the link between language and religion as providing the focal point around which traditions of nationalism and national poetry could be developed. But implicit in the whole argument is a theme very similar to that which emerges from Salin's Hawaiian data. Note that it was not sufficient that Cyril and Methodius should have been, like Captain Cook, real flesh-and-blood figures of true history. Before they could become the legendary apostles of the Slavs, as they came to be known, they had to be worked into a mythology which already existed, namely the mythology provided by the Bible. In order to become a part of a tradition, they needed to recapitulate the imaginary past and, in turn, the Tower of Babel story and the Pentecost, and in turn, the imaginary past needed to be rearranged to accommodate Cyril and Methodius. In any event, the problem with which Jakobson was here concerned, the problems are absolutely of central importance for anthropology. How does myth relate to history? How does history relate to myth? How does the metaphoric poetry of myth tie in with what we optimistically imagine to be the sedate metonymic prose of history? That is all I'm going to say. Jacobson is a much too large a figure to be squeezed into the confines of a single lecture, and, of course, other lectures in the series will show that. I must simply encourage further reading, but I must warn the novice inquirer that Jacobson's writings were of such prodigious scope that one needs to be a veritable library mole to discover even a fraction of the whole. But for anyone who is prepared to take the trouble... The rewards of such reference chasing can be enormous. It was often said in jest that Jakobsen spoke 28 languages and all of them in Russian. But where he has written, his written texts are in Western European languages—English, French, German, in particular—they are quite easy to understand and very well worthwhile. Thank you, everyone. This podcast was
0: brought to you by the New York Institute of Humanities. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.